Our scripture text for today's sermon is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, what, is, what does it mean to win? What does it mean to overcome When we say that we want spiritual victory, when we say that we want to overcome, to not be defeated, what do we mean by that? What are we looking for in our lives? Are we talking about the relief of pain? Or is there something deeper than the relief of pain? Why suffering? Why hard times? Why? And this is a question that I think every one of us, I know every one of us are asking. We're either asking it explicitly because we are in the middle of pain right now, or we have a a rhythm of lament in our lives. We complain against unjust or unfair or mean-hearted people. What we're saying is, why? Why does the world have to be ordered this way? And how can I escape that pain? How can I? This is, I think, one of the most fundamental questions every single one of us are asking. And I believe that God's word here addresses this answer. Why? Why? I want to just briefly, not not for the sake of hearing myself talk or just buying time here, Um, or stalling, I want to read just a few verses from that text once again. And I'm going to ask you to do something with me today. We're going to spend most of our time on about five or six of those verses. Particularly the first five or six that Steve read. Today is going to be highly teachy. Which means I may or may not get preachy. I never know until it happens. So I'm sorry, I can't say yes or no about that. But it's going to be highly teachy. And if you find your eyes getting heavy, if you find your heart wandering, if you find your thoughts are looking for some stimulation, maybe my phone can give me something instant. We're we're, we're training ourselves to do this. I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things today to cause your heart and your mind to engage with me because I'm so excited to tell you these things today. They've been life to me and I want them to be life to you. And so I want to ask you, if you find your eyes getting heavy, to lean forward. 
If you find that, if you find that maybe uh, your attention span seems to wane at times, take notes. Even if I'm not saying something compelling, take notes because what that does is it keeps your mind active. I do not believe, and as a matter of fact, I reject the assumption that the preacher's job is to give us a couple of good things to live on through the week. My goal is not to get you to tread water. My goal is that each and every one of you would live in the locus of joy and fellowship found in Jesus. And that requires us that we roll up our sleeves and dig Dig. And so I'm going to ask you, please, I beg you, dig with me today. Walk with me today. Journey with me today because I really, truly believe the Spirit is going to take us to someplace beautiful. Verse 12. Now listen closely to these words because Paul is in prison writing these things. And I want you to just make mental note or maybe even on your paper of the things that he says represent victory, deliverance in his life. Just listen closely. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now I want to open the floor up just for a moment for some dialogue back and forth. As you read over that with me, what are some ideas that stuck out to you that represent a victory in Paul's mind, a person who is suffering as he writes this? What is a victory? What constitutes a win? Anybody? The advance of the gospel. That's one. Eternal thinking. Eternal thinking. What do you mean by that, Trip? Because he's thinking beyond uh, his chains. He's thinking beyond his chains. So he's thinking, would you say big picture? Maybe? Is that good? Okay. Yeah, he, it, it seems that way, I see. It seems that he's got that Romans 8 idea that all things work to the good for those who love him, Jesus, and are called according to his purposes. Any other ideas, like other phrases in this text stick out to you? Increased confidence. Who had increased confidence, Kristen? Other believers who watched Paul grew in confidence to do what? Speak the gospel boldly, what Josh just prayed over us. Anything else? That so Paul's got opponents, Mrs. Marino. Paul has opponents. And his opponents somehow think that if they also out-proclaim Christ, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, history doesn't tell us, that they're going to amplify Paul's pain. Yet Paul says, even though these people are seeking to amplify my pain, they're still proclaiming truth, and I'm good with that. My oppressors are seeking to do me harm, but the name of Jesus is spreading. Anything else come to mind in that text? It's not about me. It's about Jesus and his kingdom. Do we miss anything? Do we overlook anything else? The idea of rejoicing. The idea of rejoicing. Did somebody say that over there? The idea of rejoicing. Whew. Rejoicing. I'm going to teach you how to rejoice when your life is hard today. <laughs> I wish I could say that with a clear conscience, um, or at least with some experience. Um, that's difficult. But these ideas, usually when we get to texts like this, 
we sort of move on because it seems like only Clark Kent could do this. You know, somebody with superpowers could actually do this kind of thing. And so we look for something that maybe we can do. And when we do stuff like that, what we're implicitly admitting is, I can do the things that I already think I can do. I don't want to have to depend on Jesus. But see, God is calling us to a life where we totally, 100% depend on Jesus' strength. All Him. The only way the gospel advances in this situation is when there's a person in a prison cell chained possibly to a soldier who's watching him dictating a letter that he can say, this is all about Jesus, this is not about me. Wow, how did Paul get there? How did he get there? So we've already seen some amazing things that are taking place. The gospel's advancing. Non-believers are coming to know the gospel, which is crazy because the non-believers he's talking about are the Praetorian or the Imperial Roman Guard. That's crazy because Paul lived in a day and age where there was this thing called the gospel, the good news, And what would happen when a new Caesar ascended the throne of Rome, he would send out emissaries all over the kingdom proclaiming the, quote, good news, bringing good tidings and great joy because a new Lord is ruling over all things. So when Paul said, and other writers of the New Testament said, Jesus is Lord, that was a political statement they were making. No, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, and what came with that proclamation was an immediate death sentence. You do not stir up trouble in the Roman Empire. Caesar will make your life very difficult. It's amazing how much of our Bible is political. Amazing. In the face of politics and man's systems and women's systems, I'm going to be fair to everybody here today, Uh, it's amazing that the Bible flies in the face of all that stuff with the simple proclamation that Jesus is king, not Caesar. Jesus is king. And so Paul still is sitting here, and it leaves us scratching our heads. How do we grow in that kind of maturity so that when we are in pain, we can rejoice? Now, before I move on, here's what we don't mean by rejoice. It doesn't mean that you don't feel pain. Paul wrote this, probably wrote this text while he was in this same prison cell. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says these words. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Philippi is in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now that's intense. But Paul is admitting here, I was scared. I was in terror. I didn't want to lose my life. We read verses like this where to live is Christ and to die, uh, to live is, um, what does he say? To live is Christ and, uh, and to die is gain. I almost said die is vain. I'm like, that's not it. It's not vain. Uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we read that and we think, wow, this guy had no emotions. He just cruised through life. He had no feelings. He had no nerve endings. He could experience any pain and just kept sailing straight ahead. This is not the guy that we're talking about here. This is a man who experienced pain. This is a man who suffered. And yet he found the key to being able to rejoice. And I'll tell you on the front end, you will never find the ability to rejoice if the goal is to get out of pain. I'm not saying look for pain. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible doesn't tell us to look for pain. But if our goal is to get out of pain... 
we will never find deep resources of joy in Jesus where we can say like Paul, even though we lived in terror and in fear, God brought us to a place where we did not rely on ourselves, but on the one who raises the dead. Why is that true, what I just said? Why? Why do I have a right to say that? Is, is that true is that, or is that false? Am I mistaken in making that claim? I don't think I am. Because the way that this world works is you are never going to be able to live in such a way to be free of turmoil and pain and trials and suffering. Things may be great now. Pain is in your future. I know that's unsettling to hear that. I know people won't go and say, hey, man, you've got to listen to this podcast. It's going to make you so happy today. I know that. But I'm not going to tell you things that we want to hear. I wish I could stand up here and say, if you did these verses, pain is not a part of your future. I can't say that. So the most godly people on earth suffered pain, Jesus being the chief of them. Pain is a part of our future. Now, I don't know what kind of pain. I don't know what to, to what degree we're going to suffer. Some people in this room have suffered terrible tragedies in their lives, while all of us suffer with the daily trials and tribulations that come in living in a broken world. That's what I mean by pain as well. You're never going to escape pain. And so if your goal is to escape pain, that is going to be evasive, and you are always going to find yourself angry, discontent, mad, maybe bitter. I can't find a way out of this. The goal can't be to avoid pain. So what do we do? What do we do? And this is where I want to focus on a statement that Paul makes in here that is remarkable. It's remarkable. It's in verse 13. He says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for Christ. Now, our English translation seems to suggest that God uses this for the good. This is terrible. This is ugly. This is bad. But in spite of that, God jumped in and is fixing things. He's using this. And that's true. That's true. But many, 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 many commentators agree that in the original language, the force of this statement suggests more than that. That it suggests that Paul's chains actually manifested his union with Jesus. Stay with me. I'm going to explain that. The apostle did not merely say that the gospel continued to make progress in spite of adversity. Rather, the adversity itself had turned out for the advancement of the gospel. Without that particular adversity, the gospel would not have advanced the way that it did by encouraging scared believers and bringing truth to non-believing people. It wasn't just in spite of pain. Pain was the very means by which the gospel advanced. And you could say, oh man, that's bad news. But here's the deal. By latching on to that, it's not like you're going to make more sufferings come your way. So don't be superstitious. What that does mean is this, that in the midst of my pain, I don't have to ask why. I can have a sense of knowing that God is in this. Mysteriously, somehow, navigating my life through this, not just so that I can experience fun again one day, but so that the advancement of the gospel will take place. There can be a reason beyond me in this. So... Paul's chains manifested his union with Jesus. You see, the assumption was this, that Paul was in prison because the imperial Roman government said, uh-uh-uh, you don't mess with us. You don't say subversive things in our government. So we're going to put you in a prison cell, throw away the key. 
in your face. What are you going to do now? Paul did not open his letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Rome. He opened his letter by saying, slaves of Jesus. You see, those chains in Paul's mind weren't the doing of the Roman Empire. Those chains were given to him by Jesus. Ouch. Some of your minds may be moving now. Are you saying that all pain comes from God? I'm not saying that. I can't explain mysteries, and I'm not going to. All I'm saying is that in Paul's mind, where he was, those chains were a stewardship and a responsibility given to him by Jesus. That's how he saw his pain. That's how he interpreted it. They were given to him by Jesus. Where does he get this mentality? And how how do you know that what I'm saying is right? Well, let's go to a couple of texts here. This is where the teaching part comes in. (laughs) You're like, I thought we were already there. We're going deeper. Okay. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians 1, 24. I just want to throw a couple of texts of Scripture at you to help sort of give you an idea of how Paul thought. Colossians 1, 24 is one of the most head-scratching verses in all of the Bible. I used to read this, and I would take my Bible and go like this. Huh? How? That doesn't make any sense. It seems to be bad teaching. Colossians 1.24 says this, Paul, writing from the same prison cell. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, here it comes, wait for it. And in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. What? That is narcissistic to the core. Are you saying, Paul, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection wasn't sufficient? That you had to do something to save yourself, to finish the work that Jesus started? That is not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying here. You want to know what he's saying? You want to know? Okay. All right. I'll tell you. Um, It's very likely that Paul was drawing on this ancient Jewish mentality. And the mentality could, could be called this. The messianic woes. Woe, W-O-E, is a, is, was an ancient sort of curse. It represented pain, suffering. And the ancient Jews, because they had been in exile and they had been conquered over and over and over again, and they suffered so much, and they began to look at their scriptures, their, Old Te- their Bible, the Old Testament. They began to see all the prophets suggest in their writings that the ancient Jews would go through a time of great tribulation and suffering. Yet... The tribulation and suffering that they experienced had a predetermined limit. And whenever their sufferings reached that predetermined limit by God, God would respond by saying, Enough! I am bringing their sufferings to an end. I am punishing evildoers, judging the world, and I'm going to bring about the kingdom of God so that my faithful people will live in peace and harmony without any kind of molestation from sin, from evil people, from foreign governments. This was called the messianic woes. It was the poise that the ancient Jews adopted in which they waited for the Messiah to come and lead them out of their tribulation. Paul piggybacked on this idea. He piggybacked on this. And he says rather, throughout all the New Testament and all the other writers of the New Testament, that we are waiting for another time of the coming of the Messiah. You see, Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he suffered for us. He was tortured for us. The judgment that we deserve for our trespasses, our wrongdoing, our evil acting, our evil thinking, our bad motives, all of that stuff that we carry around, Jesus suffered for us. And he did it for the hope 
that one day when he returns, he will eliminate all evil from the earth and he will lead us into a forever family with God the Father where we can gaze upon his face. We will never be tormented by temptation and sin. Sin, there, there will be no temptation won't even be able to exist because nothing is more provocative and compelling and alluring than the face of God. Nothing. Nothing could get our attention from Him. And we will be have exalted, glorified bodies. This is the day that Jesus threw all the cards on the table for. And it's going to happen. Yet right now, all of us live in a broken world. And so those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, we still experience suffering. And so what Paul is not saying here is that Christ's sufferings weren't enough to save. What he's saying is, is that Christ's sufferings filled so much of that cup, but the saints' sufferings are going to finish filling the cup to the point when God says, enough, I'm bringing all suffering to an end, and I will cast into the lake of fire all evil, and I will renew this world. We've not reached that point yet. We've not reached that point yet. This is why I think the book of Revelation talks about the, uh, the wrath of God being stored up in like bowls. It's filling, it's filling, it's filling, it's filling. But at a certain point, he will then pour out his wrath on all humanity who rejects him. Man, that's, I know that's not like a seeker-friendly sermon, but it's just in the Bible. I don't know what else to say. Um, that's heavy. I want to go to another text, Romans 5. I'm going to tie this all together. Bear with me, my friends. This is so powerful, this stuff. Our sufferings, what Paul is saying in Colossians, are not just added to Jesus's. Our sufferings in this life are an extension of Jesus's sufferings. Because we are of Jesus, we don't just suffer circumstantially and randomly. Our sufferings are literally an extension of Jesus's. I want you to think about ways that you've suffered. I'm looking at my dear friend Kitty. Please forgive me for embarrassing you. My dear friend Kitty Lawson back there who leads Victims to Victory. One of the most important institutions in this city. And yet every single month they're wondering if they're going to survive. Because what they're doing isn't sensational feeling. It's not on television. It's not, they don't have their own app. They don't have young people, you know, that dress like, you know, uh, uh, hippies that sit in city and state coffee shop managing their Facebook page. They don't have all that kind of stuff. They're doing the hard work of ministering to people who have been victims of homicide. And they're suffering. They're suffering. Some of you in this room, you're not suffering necessarily because of any relation to righteousness or mission. You're just suffering because this world is hard. It's hard. Days and months and your early years were filled with longings for and aspirations and hopes for that better day when you reach the top of the career ladder. And that's never come. And you're still living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, wondering, watching friends go on vacation two and three times a year, and you're just trying to keep the heat, the heat turned on. <laughs> Who was that over there? I don't recognize that voice. Uh, so Paul is looking at his sufferings not just as an amenity to Jesus's. Not just as a cosmetic addition to the kingdom. Oh, look at a great man of God who suffered. Wow, we, we admire him. Paul is saying, my sufferings are an extension of the sufferings of the cross. It's part of the cross. You cannot separate my daily trials from the cross. It's part of it. To use a big old word, it's existential. 
It's hardwired into our world. There's no way you, where you can run to get away from hard times. They're here. They're all around. I look at people in this room and I see hard times sitting in front of me. Special needs families, joblessness, cancer. I, our room is filled with these stories. Filled with it. Romans 5, I'll, I'll, I'll finish here. Oh, there's so much more. And I told Becky, I said, there's no way I'm getting through this today. Uh, and, and I was right. <laughs> of course, that's true every week. But uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Five verses here. Um, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Hey, Tracy, would you read this? I'm putting it, yeah, come on. Come read this for me. She's one of our readers. I want somebody else to read this. A beautiful voice. Come here, Tracy. Y'all get up for Tracy Stubblefield. All right. Come here. Come on. Right here. Right here. Right there. The purple. Would you read that? Y'all listen to this really closely. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you. So, a couple of observations here. A couple of observations. Like one or 14. Um, He says, we've been justified by faith. So Paul is talking to the Romans. He's not writing to the Romans because there's a particular need that they have. Like they're really, really suffering a lot more than other people are. This is an introductory letter. He's never met this church. He knows a few members that, he, that have, he's come across in his travels, but he doesn't know most of these people. He's not writing to the Romans because he, they're suffering in such a way that he wants to do some teaching on sufferings. That's not what's going on here. For Paul, in his mind, throughout all the New Testament, sufferings and salvation go hand in hand. They cannot be separated We are redeemed followers of Jesus navigating a busted up world. Not only that, we've got tons of bad habits that our pre-redeemed person gave to us. So just slap yourself on the back and say, way to go. (laughs) So we're living in this broken world, navigating this world. And Paul says, I want to talk to you about salvation and how that works. And this is what he says. You've been justified by faith, meaning that when God, if you have faith in Jesus, you, you rely on Jesus, when God looks at you, He does not see your evil deeds and your guilt. You know what He sees? He sees Jesus' perfection. And He sees that even when you're acting like a knucklehead. That's grace. You don't lose that when you're a knucklehead and then have to regain it by praying a repentance prayer. We repent because we've sinned against God, but we've never lost our salvation. We are justified. It is a status that Yahweh himself said about us, and nobody can change what he says. You are justified. We have peace with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. How did we get that peace? Jesus died a violent death in our place. Jesus did. Whoa. Then he says this. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is our new poise. We're in grace. Some people call it, the Bible calls it the new covenant. But it's also called grace. Grace is the covenant that we are in if we follow Jesus. We are in grace. Some used to be under the law. Now we are in grace. 
And it is a status that has been conferred upon everyone who believes on Jesus. You are grace. You're not just in it. You are it. Grace is your identity. Grace is who you are, which is why we can practice the faith and screw up and fall down and get up and our poise, our status in God's eyes has never been changed. We are grace. We're grace. Man, that is good news. I need that every day. And all the other knuckleheads said, Amen. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, if we have all this grace, why do we hope in something else? Because of what I just described. We need the glory of God to be revealed in our lives and for all sin and ungodliness to be burnt away. And we need new bodies that will never see corruption. And Jesus has promised that that will happen. At his second glorious appearing, those who follow him will be resurrected for eternal life and live with physical bodies in this world for him forever. We will climb mountains with new bodies. We will swim in oceans with new bodies. We will eat real food with our mouths in the New Jerusalem. Barbecue fest will continue. I think, I don't know. I'm going to be killing pigs then, but something, it'll be really good. It'll be super good. We rejoice in that hope. What do we rejoice in? Our hope that that's going to happen. All right, stay with me. Not only that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So we rejoice in the hope of a new body, a new world, and we rejoice in our present pain. What? Why? I can get rejoicing in the world to come because that's going to give me a new body. I'll be back in 32 jeans. How do I rejoice in sufferings? Why do I rejoice in that? What will sufferings do for me? Paul answers this question. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now, that doesn't happen automatically. Because I know people who go to church a whole bunch. I was one of them. And I've been through hard times before. And it didn't give me character. It took away my character. It made me bitter and cynical, and angry, and mean-spirited, and untrusting. So this isn't automatic. This requires some worshipful engagement on our end. But here's who it happens to. And he says it in this last part. We're almost done. Keep leaning forward. Keep taking notes. Keep going like this. Okay? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the only way that transaction happens, that process happens, that I go through sufferings, and as a result of those sufferings, I learn endurance, and I grow in character, and character evolves into hope, a hope for the better things to come. The only way that that happens in my life if I've already experienced God pouring His love into my heart. A born-again person. A born-again person. Now, bringing this all together. Bringing this all together. Why was Paul able to rejoice when he's facing all this? Because Paul experienced something and thought it out and lived it out in a way that I believe that most followers of Jesus don't. Paul knew that he was in union with Jesus. Everything Jesus was, Paul was. So Paul didn't have this, theolo- this theological nugget bouncing around in his head that said, get out of pain, get out of pain, avoid suffering, avoid suffering. He didn't have that bouncing around in his head. His mind was being transformed by God's Word so that he learned to interpret the sufferings that he was facing. He didn't go looking for sufferings, and you shouldn't either. 
But when sufferings came, Paul didn't immediately try to pray it away. He learned to interpret his sufferings. He learned to read his sufferings. He became fluent in the language of sufferings. Because this is what our whole faith is. What happens when we come to faith in Jesus? What's the first thing that we do in worshipful obedience? Anybody? But like a function, like something that we do. We're, hint, we're doing it next week. <laughs> baptism. What does baptism mean? If you grew up in the South, it means it's just a symbol. You, you know, you go in the water, find the watery grave, and you get raised up and praise God. You know, then you go to membership class. That's not what baptism is. That is not baptism. Baptism is me saying, you saying, Jesus' identity is my identity. In the same way that Jesus died to the sins of the world, I will die to my sin and I will go into a grave and be raised up as a new covenant person. I am now a Jesus person. That's who I am. That's who I am. Baptism is the first thing we do because we are saying, I reject the old way and I embrace Jesus' way. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Why? Why do we have gluten-free bread? Why do we have grape juice? Why do we do that? Because we are framing the entire Christian life that Jesus' broken body I take into myself. Jesus' poured out blood I take into myself. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. That's not who you, even though you think you are, that's not who you are. Your allegiance isn't to some man-made party. Your allegiance is to King Jesus. You're not a slave of some power. You are a follower of Jesus. You don't have to lose your mind in November. Let me tell you a secret. The Bible says all the kingdoms of the world are the kingdoms of our God. The Bible says that all the kingdoms of the world will one day come to an end, all of them. I'm not advocating apolitical non-activity. That's not what I'm saying. But my God, some of us think that, man, the next president is going to shape the future of our lives. We worry. We get anxious over these things. We are not that. I am a Jesus person. That's who you are. So we can interact intelligently and lovingly over issues and not have to tow a system or party's line. We don't have to join the echo chamber. We don't have to zoom in on only one station on the news stations on our TV. We don't have to do that. We are Jesus people. And because we live in this world, we know that we are going to experience trials and sufferings that come with this world. But, but, followers of Jesus who suffer, we are suffering the sufferings of Jesus. His sufferings are our own. This last week, I put something up on Facebook that turned into something far bigger than I anticipated. I asked this question. Do you have a painful story in which you can see God's hand at work? Have you suffered, yet when you look back at your experiences, past or present, you can see how God is using that to mature you, to grow you, and to change you? I don't mean just God got you through it. I mean you learned something. Something happened character-wise in your life. These are a few of the responses I got. First one, the death of my son, February 2015, made me realize I was deficient in allowing God to have all the control. I don't want that story. But she had it. And she lives with it every day. Another one. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1997 at 36 years old. And that helped me to understand that God is sovereign over everything in my life. But I love the humility here. 
Even after 19 years, I still struggle with trying to control and manipulate anxious situations instead of resting in Jesus. Here's another one from a very dear friend of me and Becky's who we've known for over 20 years. One of the, one of the most godly people I've ever known. She said this, I'll never forget the night that I broke down sobbing on the couch when my husband asked me, do you feel like God gave you a stone? She's referencing Matthew 7 where Jesus is talking about prayer. Ask, seek, knock. And then he goes on to say, if you ask for bread, do you think your loving Heavenly Father, Father will give you a stone? Your Father loves you, Jesus says. So that's what she's referencing here. She said her husband asked her, do you feel like God gave you a stone? In response to my wrestling with the loss of three babies and the tragic death of my 24-year-old brother, all occurring within 16 months, that truth broke me. I did. I felt like I had been given big, fat stones when I asked for bread. I prayed those babies would live. I prayed my brother, who had been mentally struggling, would be gloriously saved. Looking back, I also see this as a turning point in my grief. I realized he knew my heart and my struggles. I couldn't hide those from him. He knew them altogether. So I invited him into my wrestlings. I can honestly say that I have grown deeper in my affection for Jesus and in my love for God's word through these tragedies. Never have I seen his word come to bear as clearly and specifically as in this season of my life. Then she quoted Psalm 119.68. He is good and does good. She said that was the mantra I clung to. At first, not clearly understanding it, but now I know. He did answer my prayers. He did give me, give me bread. In the midst of those trials, He gave me Himself in abundance, sustaining and strengthening my soul. He indeed is good, not because of what He gives, but because of who He is couple more. My mother died on December 29, 2009. We didn't see it coming. My father and I were never close and we drifted more apart after mom died. We had just begun to rekindle a relationship when he was diagnosed with stage four metastatic melanoma. When he got diagnosed, I immediately quit my job and began to care for him full time, caring for a man he didn't know probably had a lot of baggage with. On his final day alive, I was the only one he remembered and I was the only one he wanted there. I had never felt that from him before. The death of a husband and a father, which God used to bring salvation to a son and his mother, that son is in our worship band. Depression evolving into multiple suicide attempts that God sovereignly used as the path of healing in this girl's life who's sitting up front somewhere. Sexual abuse at the hands of a youth pastor of the church he grew up in. A benign tumor that won't go away, yet God is using to deepen a family's dependence on him. Abandonment, teen pregnancies, and the stigma of social rejection a spouse's infidelity, cancer, divorce, severe abuse, the death of a child, all of these people are saying the same thing. If you want to read it in my Facebook, you can. You've got to join. But um, all these people are saying the same thing. That God is bringing them to a place of dependence on Jesus. And people all around them are watching their lives and are being encouraged and emboldened, not just to make it, but to live explicitly Jesus-centered lives. This is what our sufferings are meant to do. And this can happen to anyone whose love has been shed abroad in your heart. But I'm certain there are people here today who can't speak of a time when you've experienced God's love poured into your hearts. And so I'm just going to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Don't amen. Just think. 
Are you sensing the Spirit calling you to union with Jesus? I can stand up here and say, you want to be saved? Everybody wants to be saved. I'm asking you, do you sense the Holy Spirit drawing you out of your selfishness, of your self-centeredness, and calling you to disappear into Jesus, to become one with Jesus? If that's you, I'd love to talk to you. You don't have to talk to me. Talking to me doesn't make you saved. Just go to the information table, sign up on that iPad to be baptized. Next week, we're having baptisms and we're celebrating people who have become one with Jesus. Lord, you are good. I am thankful for your love and for the safety of your presence, for the glory of your touch. And Father God, it is our prayer in Jesus' name, our sincere prayer, that we would know and be shot through with your life, your resurrection power, hope, and that, Lord Jesus, when hard times come our way, we can interpret those times and read into them your ways, see your ways that you desire to save us, renew us, grow us, and shape us into the image of Jesus. In your name, amen. As we always do, we worshipfully finish, complete each one of our services by taking the Lord's Supper. If you are not a person who follows Jesus, we're going to ask you not to take the Lord's Supper. This is a covenant meal, a communion meal, between all of us who have become one with Jesus. If you've come to faith, then we do invite you to the table. But remember, as you partake of the Lord's Supper, do so with reverence, search your heart, and remember His death. In Jesus' name, God bless you, my friends.